In Romans 15, verses 1 through 7, Paul brings to a conclusion his argument for church unity in the midst of diversity over matters of conscience and Christian freedom, that is, matters about which the Bible does not speak either by explicit command or by necessary inference. He has been talking about this subject since the beginning of Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and this is now the fourth sermon in uh, this progression as we've gone through this. First, in verse 1, Paul reminds the strong that they bear the primary responsibility in maintaining this unity. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The unity of the church is constantly threatened by sincerely held differences of opinion in non-essential, non-gospel matters. For the church at Rome, it was the issue of non-kosher meats, uh, the Sabbath and other Jewish holy days, and wine. For First Baptist Nixa, it might be uh, whether a Christian should or should not drink alcohol, uh, non-Christian traditions uh, regarding with holidays, Christmas trees, trick-or-treating, Easter bunny, and so forth, um, secular music, public school, homeschooling convictions, opinions over socio-political matters, um, or a thousand other potential sources of contention that could divide us. In such matters, Paul says, the strong. Now let me identify the strong for you. The strong are those who understand the gospel and grasp its implications for Christian freedom. The strong are those who possess the maturity and the discernment to recognize the difference between the essential and the non-essential. The strong are those whose consciences are free to partake or not partake. The strong are those who understand that all things are clean if they are sanctified by the word of God and prayer and can be received with thanksgiving to the glory of God. The strong are those who grasp that it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather what comes out of his heart. The strong, Paul says, have an obligation to bear with the failings or the weaknesses, literally, of the weak. The weak are those who have not yet grasped all the implications of the gospel. The weak are those whose consciences are not free to partake. They are those who are not convinced of what Paul says in Romans 14, 14, that nothing is unclean in itself. Or 14, 20, that everything is indeed clean. The weak are those who still attach holiness to external ritual in some way, to some degree, in some form. Paul says the strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to trample all over their conscience, all over their convictions, in the selfish attempt to please themselves. As I stated the matter last week, unity is maintained when the strong forego their freedom for the sake of the weak. Then Paul adds that this is in keeping with the way of Christ, who likewise did not please himself, but sought the good, that is the edification of others. Verses 2 and 3. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now what's interesting to me at any rate is that Paul does not support his argument here that Jesus did not please himself but sought the good of others. He, do, he doesn't support his argument in the same way that I would support it. In fact, in the same way that I did support it last week. That is by looking at episodes from Jesus' own life to show that there were times when he set aside his freedom for the good of his brothers and that there were times when he pressed his freedom for the good of his brothers. For example, the controversy over the temple tax in Matthew 17 or the controversy over the Sabbath in Mark 2. Paul doesn't even point us to that supreme demonstration of Jesus' self-denying love for the good of his people that is found in his own suffering and death on the cross, which is exactly the way Paul argues the exact same point in Philippians chapter 2. That's not what he does here. Here, Paul reaches back into an obscure verse from Psalm 69, which has no apparent relevance to his argument whatsoever. And the question that I want to ask as I'm reading Romans 15 is why? Why does he do that? Anytime the Apostle Paul does something that seems strange to you, it's a good idea to ask why? Because he has a purpose, Why does Paul skip over the obvious illustrations from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, obvious illustrations of Jesus' self-emptying love from Jesus' own ministry in favor of Psalm 69.9? It is not that Psalm 69.9 has no relevance to Paul's argument. It is rather that the relevance is just not immediately apparent. But as best as I can tell, let me, let me kind of trace Paul's line of thought for you here. First, it needs to be recognized that Psalm 69 was regarded by first century Jews, like Paul, as a messianic psalm. A psalm that pointed beyond itself to the life and the ministry of the Messiah, of Jesus. And on that basis, Psalm 69 was quoted or alluded to some eight other times in the New Testament in reference to Christ. Psalm 69 verses 7 to 9 actually says this. David speaking, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So in Psalm 69, David is describing the hostility that he endured from his own people because of his faithfulness to his God. His own brothers, his fellow Israelites, hated God, and so they hated him as well. That's what David says. Now you can already hear Jesus picking up this imagery and this language in the upper room discourse when he's talking to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. For instance, in John 15, when he told them, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And in fact, just five verses later, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. 
So here's what Paul's thinking as he's writing Romans 15. He's thinking about how Christ did not please himself, but sought the good of others, even at great cost to himself. And in Paul's Old Testament saturated mind, that reminds him of Psalm 69, which he already regards as a psalm about Jesus, a messianic psalm. That is a psalm in which David spoke better than he knew. He spoke as a type of the Messiah, the son of David, who was to come, who would be persecuted or reproached by his own nation who hated God. They hated God, so they hated Christ, which is precisely the way Jesus so often described his rejection by Israel. And so... With this connection made in Paul's mind, what Paul does is to take Psalm 69.9, the reproaches with which they reproached you, fell on me, and he provides it for us as an example of Jesus' self-denying sufferings for the good of others, which he then gives as a reason for why the strong should deny themselves and forego their freedom for the good of their weaker brother. So if I could summarize Paul's argument, it would be something like this. If Christ denied himself and suffered reproach and even death for the sake of his weaker brothers, then surely the strong in Rome can give up meat or wine or observe Jewish holy days for the sake of their weaker brothers. I mean, what is pork? What is shrimp? What is wine? What is Saturday in comparison with the self-denying sufferings of the Son of God? That's what Paul's arguing. Now, to see if we're on the right track here, I want to read to you two comments made from two exceptional scholars on the book of Romans. The first one comes from Douglas Moo, and we'll see if we're on the right track here. Moo says, Paul may be trying to get the strong to put their sufferings in perspective, Sufferings is in quotation marks. In other words, I can't eat meat, I can't drink wine, I have to observe the Sabbath in the presence of my weaker brothers. He says, Paul's trying to get them to to regard those sufferings in perspective. Occasionally abstaining from meat or wine or observing a special religious day should not seem like much of a burden in comparison with what Christ had to suffer for the sake of others. All right. Uh, John Murray says something similar. He says, we may well ask then, how does this feature of our Lord's humiliation bear upon the duty of pleasing our neighbor in the situation which Paul has in view? It is the apparent dissimilarity that points up the force of Jesus' example. There is a profound discrepancy between what Christ did and what the strong are urged to do. He pleased not himself to the incomparable extent of bearing the enmity of men against God as he bore this reproach because he was jealous of God's honor. He did not by flinching evade any of the stroke. Shall we, the strong, insist on pleasing ourselves in the matter of food and drink to the detriment of God's saints and the edification of Christ's body? In short, What Paul is arguing is that the Son of God laid aside his glory, was blasphemed, was tortured, was put to death for the good of his weaker brother. That's what Christ the strong did for us, the weak. And all I'm asking you to do is to forego a little meat and wine. All I'm asking you to do is to resist that urge to share that meme on Facebook that you know is going to cause unnecessary heartburn to your weaker brother. 
All I'm asking you to do is not blast Pink Floyd on your car stereo when you're riding with that new Christian brother who still associates secular music with his rebellious pot-smoking past. Like, what I'm asking you to do is so small in comparison with what Christ did. That's how Paul is arguing. What I'm interested in this morning, though, is what Paul says in the very next verse, verse 4. Evidently, Paul felt the need to justify his rather obscure use of Psalm 69.9. And so he writes in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. See what he's doing here? Paul, what are you doing quoting from Psalm 69? Just tell us about Jesus. No, 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 no. Paul says, I have a point. Because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What we have in verse 4 is a little insight into the way that Paul viewed and used his Bible. And I submit to you that that's incredibly valuable and massively important because I want to view and employ my Bible the way Paul viewed and used his. I mean, can we agree that that would be a worthy goal for First Baptist Nixa? Who better to model for us a faithful, robust, biblical doctrine of Scripture than the Apostle Paul himself? So instead of continuing on in our journey through Romans, we're going to pause here today before this little window into Paul's head, and we're going to ask how Paul regarded the scriptures, how Paul employed the scriptures, and how we ought to do the same. So what we're going to do is to look into this window into Paul's mind and draw from it four pillars of Paul's doctrine of the scriptures. And my exhortation to you this morning, I want to be very clear. I think these same four pillars ought to be your four pillars. I want you to make Paul's doctrine your doctrine because I want you to have Paul's hope. So number one, Paul had faith in the inspiration of the scriptures. It's this confidence that Behind the human author stands the divine author. Behind the human intention stands the divine intention that enables Paul to affirm, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. David was the human author of Psalm 69. He likely wrote it around 979 BC, about the time of Absalom's rebellion. Or maybe during some other crisis of his reign. In other words, he wrote it a thousand years before Paul used it. And he wrote it to describe his own sufferings. The reproaches which he was bearing. And to confess his faith and his hope in the deliverance of Yahweh, his God. Maybe, maybe David even wrote it as an example to exhort his own people to endurance and to encourage them that they might have hope as well. And, and Paul knows all of this. He knows David wrote it. He knows when David wrote it. But Paul also believes that David wrote better than he knew. That behind David's own thoughts and intentions, in and with Paul's own thoughts and intentions were the thoughts and the intentions of the Holy Spirit guiding Paul to write 
what he did, or guiding David, rather, to write what he did. And Paul believes that what David wrote a thousand years earlier was written for the the instruction of the church of Rome a thousand years later. Which means, then, that for Paul, the ultimate author of Psalm 69 must not be David, but God. So Paul affirmed the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Furthermore, Paul says this isn't only true of Psalm 69. It's not only true of David's writings. It's true of whatever was written in former times. By which he clearly means whatever was written in the scriptures, which he specifies later in verse 4. That through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the same confidence in the divine inspiration of Psalm 69, which enables Paul to take a text written by David a thousand years earlier, put it on the lips of Christ as he hung on the cross, and then apply it to the first century church at Rome, is a confidence that Paul possesses for all scriptures, for whatever is written. In other words, Paul believed in the comprehensive inspiration of the scriptures. Now, to make sure that we're not reading too much into one verse, let's check ourselves by some other statements of Paul to see if this is really the way he thought of the Bible. This is really his doctrine of Scripture. I want to look at two other passages. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul makes the exact same point to the Corinthian church that he does here to the Roman church. He's speaking of the faithlessness of that Israelite generation that came out of Egypt in the Exodus and dwelt in the wilderness. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Just think about what Paul's saying there. The Exodus, the passing through the Red Sea, The miraculous provision of manna and water, the episode of the golden calf, the grumbling of Israel, the judgment of the serpents. By the way, that's just what Paul is mentioning in verses 1 to 10 of 1 Corinthians 10. All of those events happened as an example for us, the church living in the last days. And it was written down, that is, it was inscripturated for our instruction. So note what Paul has done. Now not only is the writing of of Scripture devised for our instruction, but the events behind the writing of the Scripture are all ordained and providentially governed for the instruction of his people, for the good of his church. Everything in Paul's universe, in God's universe, is dripping with divine purpose. Not least the book which God wrote. So Paul would say that not only all scripture, but all events are designed for our instruction, for our salvation, for our good. Which sounds like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The second passage, and I think the clearest statement of Paul's doctrine of the scripture in all of his writings is in 2 Timothy 3, 16. 
where Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Once again, you see here Paul affirming both the divine and the comprehensive inspiration of the scriptures. All scripture, okay, not just those pertaining to theology or salvation, all scripture is God breathed. Theo, God, noustos, breathe, God breathed. So behind the human author, behind and in and through David's thoughts and Isaiah's thoughts and Hosea's thoughts and Moses's thoughts, behind and in and through their feelings, behind and in and through their very words is the very breath of God such that the words of David or Moses or Isaiah or Matthew or Luke or Paul are the very words of God. When you open up your Bible, you ought to be able to feel the breath of God on your face. And God does not speak fallibly. God does not speak falsely. He is not a God that he should lie, the scripture says. When God speaks, God speaks infallibly and inerrantly. Thus, the divine and the comprehensive inspiration of Scripture is also for Paul an inerrant and infallible inspiration of Scripture. For Paul, the words of Scripture are the very words of God. Second, Paul believed in the instruction of the Scriptures. They are instructional. They are profitable for teaching, he says in 2 Timothy 3.17. Or Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So now he takes the doctrine of inspiration just one step further. We not only have a divinely, comprehensively, infallibly inspired book. We have a book that was given for a purpose, namely for our instruction. And therefore, we are intended to learn from, to believe, and to obey this book. For example, we learn in Romans 15.3 that the instruction which God designed for the Roman church out of Psalm 69.9, written a thousand years earlier, was that if Jesus, the Messiah of whom David prophetically spoke, if Jesus willingly, lovingly, yea, joyfully bore the reproaches of the ungodly in order to redeem his people, then the strong should likewise willingly, lovingly, yea, joyfully make the infinitely lesser sacrifice of foregoing their freedoms in food and wine and other matters of conscience for the good of the weaker brother. Now, would you or I have made that connection from Psalm 69? Probably not. But perhaps that's why God, 1,000 years later, inspired the Apostle Paul in precisely the same way he had inspired David in order to make that connection for you so that you would be instructed, so that you would forego your freedom for the sake of love, so that the, the weaker brother would not be destroyed, so that the church would not be divided. Let's take another example. This one from 1 Corinthians 10. Back in that text we looked at a moment ago. 
In that passage, Paul repeatedly pulls instruction out of the ancient inspired text of Exodus and Numbers. After demonstrating that the Israelites who came out of Egypt in the Exodus were not so different from the Corinthian church, he says, they too received a baptism of sorts. Uh, They too ate the same spiritual food. They too drank the same spiritual drink from the same spiritual rock, which is Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. After pointing out that the, that congregation of Israel is not so different from the congregation at Corinth, Paul begins to take the ancient text about them and apply it to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 10.5 Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example to us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see what he's doing? Despite all of God's saving mercies towards Israel, they still committed idolatry. Don't be like them. Do not be idolaters, verse 7. They committed sexual immorality with the Midianites and God killed 23,000 of them. Don't do that. Don't be sexually immoral, verse 8. They put God to the test and God judged them with fiery serpents. Don't be like them. Don't put God to the test. Verse 9. They grumbled against God and were destroyed. Don't be like them. Don't be grumblers against God. Verse 10. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see what Paul has done? He's taken a text now 1,500 years old. And he has made application of it to the present day church. Saying, do not think that just because you have been brought out of bondage, just because you've been baptized, just because you eat the spiritual food of the Lord's Supper, just because you drink the spiritual drink from the rock of Christ that is the word of God, that God won't destroy you if you prove unfaithful as well. That's his point. It is possible, in other words, to be a part of the visible congregation, to be a part of the external visible church and not have true faith. That's what he's warning about. Time will tell. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds and faith is evidenced by its fruits. It's a powerful application and warning that Paul makes from a text that was 1,500 years old. Now, could you have discerned all that instruction out of the book of Exodus or out of the book of Numbers without Paul's help? Maybe. Maybe if you had made the connection that Paul made between the congregation of Israel in the wilderness and the church, their baptism, our baptism, their food, our food, their drink, our drink, their rock, our rock. If you had made that connection, you probably could have come up to that application. It's not inconceivable that you could have read the account of the golden calf and concluded, wow, I better not turn from God to idols. And that would have been a proper application of that text. Or read about the grumbling of Israel and concluded, man, I don't want to become like them. And you would have been using the text rightly. 
That is the instruction that is everywhere to be found in the scriptures. And it's rooted in the inspiration of the scriptures. Because the scriptures are inspired, they are instructive. Because they are God-breathed, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Third, Paul believed in the intention of the scriptures. And he names that intention. God wrote the Bible that you might have hope. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. All right. So what's the purpose of the instruction? Is it merely to get the strong to forego their freedom for the sake of the weaker brother in order that there wouldn't be any squabbling in the church, in order that the church at Rome would be united and at peace with one another? Well, I mean, unity is a grand goal, but it's not the ultimate intent of the scriptures. What is the purpose of the instruction? Is it to get the church to quit committing idolatry or sexual immorality or to stop its grumbling against God? Well, a faithful, pure, holy, contented church is a lofty aim, but it's not the ultimate intention of the scriptures. The ultimate intent of the scriptures is that we might have hope. What is this hope? That God wrote the scriptures in order to give to his people. Hope of what? Ah, you've been in Romans for a while now, and you should be able to answer that. For Paul, it is the hope of, of glory. It is the hope that the glory of God will be our inheritance forever. That's what Paul means by hope. That hope is the focus of our life. It's the ground of our perseverance through sufferings. It is our only comfort in life and in death. Two passages from Romans will show you what I mean. Romans 5, 2. Through Christ... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's Paul's hope. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. Wait for what? For what, Paul? Wait for glory. The ultimate hope of the Christian is that one day the glory of God will be revealed in such radiance and splendor that he will shine like the sun. Father, son, spirit, just emanating with refulgent glory and filling the cosmos. He will be worshipped by an innumerable multitude of men and angels, all of them exploding with boundless joy and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. All sin, all sickness, all darkness, all death will have passed away and all things will be made new. And this new creation and this new heavens and this new earth will just throb with all of the potential and promise of a spring morning. And you and I, we will be among them. We'll inherit all of that. We will inherit the glory of God by grace through faith in Christ. And that is the hope of which Paul speaks. And that is the hope that God wrote this book so that you would live on. 
That's the purpose of which the scriptures were written. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God inspired the scriptures, says Paul, filled them with instruction. That in the midst of every trial and every tribulation and every sin and every suffering and every disagreement over food and wine and music and masks and everything else, we might have hope in the glory of God. Why? Because when you are full of hope in the glory of God, when that is your theme and that is your song and that is the air in which you breathe, then nothing else really matters. Not eternally. And you can get over the small stuff, right? You can just, it doesn't matter. Why? Because I've got the hope of glory. How'd you get that? In the scriptures. That's the purpose of the Bible. That's the purpose of Paul in pausing his exhortation to unity in the midst of diversity to explain why he did what he did. Why didn't Paul just go to the life of Christ and say, look, Jesus didn't please himself. He worked, he, he, he denied himself for the good of his brothers. Why didn't Paul do that? That's what he does elsewhere is because he wanted you to know that you can go to this for hope and that this hope will become the grounds of your unity. He wanted you to be able to read back into the Old Testament Pull out a messianic psalm in which Christ says, my beloved are more precious to me than pleasing myself. So I will bear reproach and shame and guilt and sin and suffering and death in order to save them. And by that scriptural example, exhort us to do the same. Paul did that because that's what the Bible is for. To take our eyes off of ourselves, place them on Christ, who is our hope of glory. Go to the Bible and look for Jesus and in him find hope. One final component of Paul's doctrine of scripture. We don't just open our Bibles, read them, and automatically get hope. These are not magic words. You can't read them like an incantation, like a spell. We need the spirit of God. The word is made effectual by the spirit and the spirit works effectually through the word. Word and spirit, spirit and word. They always belong together. In other words, the inspired instruction of scripture will not accomplish the intention of scripture apart from the illumination of the scriptures by the spirit of God. Here's where I get this. Paul says, look at verse four again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Note that endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. Okay. The hope comes through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. Now look at the very next verse. So Paul prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement. That repetition is not coincidental. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, how? Through the scriptures, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how he did it? You see where I'm getting that? We need hope. Hope unifies the church. Where do we get hope? 
Hope comes by means of endurance and encouragement. How do we get that? Endurance and encouragement comes from the God of endurance and encouragement. And the God of endurance and encouragement gives that endurance and encouragement through the scriptures. So as you go to the Bible, believing it to be divinely, comprehensively, infallibly inspired, believing and obeying the scripture's instruction, God illuminates the scriptures for you, creating within you by his spirit, nurturing within you endurance and encouragement and ultimately hope. With what result? According to verse 6, with the result that the church, now filled with people who hope in the glory of God, the church will now regard food and wine and days as something that doesn't ultimately matter and certainly not something worth dividing over. What matters is the glory of God. So together with one voice, they glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They still have differences of opinion over food and wine and days. It just doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because they've got the hope of the glory of God, which was given them by the God of encouragement and endurance, which he gave through the scriptures. Every week, Joel Osteen stands before 52,000 attendees at Lakewood Church in Houston. He holds his Bible up, he flashes his big toothy smile, and he leads the church through the Bible pledge. They do it every week. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. I have no problem with that. That's good. My problem is that he then puts his Bible back down on the pulpit, never to open it up again for the remainder of the sermon, at least not in any exegetically responsible way. So I'm not going to do that with you this morning. I thought about it, but I'm not. What I'm going to give you is a four-part confession based upon this morning's sermon that I invite you to use when you open up your Bible tomorrow morning. Here it goes. Number one, I believe the Bible is inspired by God, every word of it, and therefore it is infallible and without error. So I will trust what it says. Number two, I believe the Bible was given for my instruction to teach me how to know and please God. Therefore, I will obey all that it commands. Number three, I believe the Bible's aim is to point me to Christ that I might have hope in the glory of God above all else. So I will seek that purpose by looking for Christ on every page. And number four, I believe that the Bible must be illumined by the Holy Spirit if I am to find that hope in Christ. So I will pray for the power of the Spirit to make this word come alive to me. That's Paul's doctrine of the scriptures. I urge you to adopt it as your doctrine of the scriptures in order that Paul's hope 
might be your hope.